Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Hey, welcome to Politico Tech. Today's Tuesday, February 13th. I'm Stephen Overly. There are all of these ethical gray areas around the use of artificial intelligence. And a series of headlines I've read recently got me thinking about a new one when it comes to elections. We've talked before on this show about politicians using AI-generated deepfakes to falsely depict an opponent. But in these recent stories, candidates were creating AI-generated versions of themselves. In Indonesia, the frontrunner for president is a military general using an AI-generated cartoon as his campaign image. And in Pakistan, the former prime minister used an AI-generated video to declare victory from prison. These deepfakes still have the potential to deceive voters, and perhaps even skew an election's outcome. And yet, we're talking about how candidates communicate on the campaign trail, and any restrictions will likely raise questions about the freedom of political speech. So I called up Katie Harbath to help delve into the dilemma here. Katie was a Republican digital strategist earlier in her career, then spent a decade on Facebook's public policy team managing elections. She's now the chief global affairs officer at Duco Experts, a tech consulting firm. On the show today, Katie weighs in on the rise in candidates deepfaking themselves. Well, Katie, welcome to Politico Tech. Thanks for having me. Fears about AI-generated deepfakes being used in politics tend to focus on candidates creating fake videos or audio of their opponent. But there are several recent examples we've seen of candidates making deepfakes of themselves. How significant is that distinction to you? Well, I think there's a there's another layer to that. Um, I think that there's a question of if they're also being truthful about using AI as part of that and labeling that and being clear to people that this we are using this technology as part of that um, so that people understand what part of it might have been synthetically generated. But I think the other big distinction there too, right, is that they're authorizing this use of it. And so they're saying, I authorize whatever this is saying, whatever it's showing me doing, I think the question is, as with all of these things, it's going to get into the nuance of what it is that they're showing or saying, and what does that make people believe? I want to get into some of these recent examples that I've been reading about. I know you're you're familiar with because some of them are, are a little crazy um, to me, but I guess that's the, the times that we're living in. You know, this dynamic that we're talking about is actually playing out in the Indonesia's elections taking place tomorrow. The front runner in that race is this 72-year-old defense minister who's known as like a fierce nationalist, but his campaign has used an AI-generated cartoon of him with like these big eyes and these chubby cheeks to portray him as cuddly. That's their word, cuddly. What do you think of this tactic? I was kind of blown away when I first heard about how these candidates in Indonesia are using it. And, you know, in all honesty, I'm still kind of struggling with, like, where would we draw these lines on it? You know, having worked at Facebook for 10 years, like, knowing where to draw these lines is just incredibly hard of what this looks like. And a lot of people are like, well, I'm okay if that candidate does that, but I'm not okay if that candidate does that. And, like, that starts to parse these things out in in a much different way. And so I give kudos to them for experimenting with this and trying to think of different ways of which to use AI in a way as they're campaigning. And I do think that this is, though, too, kind of even shows the importance, though, 
of the media and others who can kind of hold to account of being like, you might be seeing this imagery from them and this is what the campaign is saying, but don't forget these parts of the candidate too, right? Or like the other campaigns can also be pushing back on what these types of things look like. And I think there's elements of that's almost the better way in which to do this rather than trying to put rules around what specifically these campaigns can or cannot do because they're just going to find the loophole or they're going to go right up to that line anyways. You know, this example in Indonesia sort of struck me because plenty of politicians have perception problems on the campaign trail. How likely are we to see political strategists kind of use AI now or in the future to shape and kind of manipulate some of those perceptions? I think for me, this election 2024 with use of AI reminds me a lot of sort of Obama 2008 of using social media. You know, a lot of the bigger AI companies like OpenAI and Google and others have said that they're just barring their tools from being used for politics. Now, how well they can enforce them is another question. But I think you're also going to be seeing more companies and vendors pop up building custom tools for campaigns to do this. And I think that's some of what we saw in Indonesia as well. So we're going to see a lot of experimentation for sure in this election. We'll see examples. My gut, though, is that it's going to be future elections as this technology continues to get more absorbed overall by people knowing how to use it, what it can do, how you might think about it. It'll start to get used more and more. I'm really going to be interested to look at the midterms in 2026 and the election in 2028, (laughs) which I can't believe we're already talking about that. But that's where I, you know, we should really expect to see like this is going to just continue to get absorbed into pretty much everything of how a campaign works. Right. These technologies sort of mature and, you know, the political world and their understanding of how they can use these technologies also matures. And so I think that's an interesting point that future elections will start to see that really solidify. I wonder if, you know, as you look at some of these early examples, are you seeing risks for campaigns that use AI generated deep fakes to represent their candidate? And and what are those risks? So I think one of those is going to be backlash, right, in terms of if they go too far and how they're presenting that that candidate, um, and does it actually end up turning off voters when they realize that the candidate hadn't actually done or, or said that that type of thing. Um, I do find it interesting, too, you know, in places like the U.S. and Europe, where there's a lot more attention on regulating AI and a lot of negative attention for using AI, I feel like we're seeing campaigns use it less because they don't necessarily want that sort of scrutiny. They kind of are maybe waiting to see where the regulatory system goes. But as we've been talking about in Indonesia, and we've got some other examples around the world where there's maybe a little bit less of a focus on that, campaigns are feeling more free um, in which to use this technology because they're not the media um, and government regulators and others aren't necessarily breathing down their necks about um, how bad this could be if they use that. And so I'm kind of interested to watch that dynamic play out of even absent of regulation, what that sort of pressure does on how people do or do not use the technology. Totally. I think some of these international examples are so fascinating because even if they don't necessarily indicate entirely where we're going with our elections and the use of AI, they certainly raise a lot of questions about how AI could be used and whether that's, you know, something that we want to accept or not. There was this other recent example in Indonesia. You may have seen this where one political party released an AI-generated video that depicted the country's former um, dictator, Suharto. And it should be obvious that this video was fake because he died in 2008. But it did get me thinking about how AI might be used to kind of extend the relevance of political figures, right, and sort of turn them into these deities in some sort of bizarre way. What do you think about that? 
When I saw that example, I immediately kind of went back to how for the longest time Republicans always hearkened back to Ronald Reagan in the Reagan days and different things of that nature. To your point, though, about like it's sort of bringing them back to life and people hearing that that audio or seeing that video of that person. And even if that person is dead, I wonder how people would react to that. And I have a feeling that some people will react poorly because they'll probably think it's like disrespectful to that candidate. Others might think it's just kind of cool of what that looks like. But this is, you know, this shows the complication, though, of also drawing guardrails around this because you can't just be like, if you're one of the AI companies, we're just going to ban the ability to like create things about the candidates. You also have to start thinking about the former elected officials, other former prominent people. It's sort of like everything becomes political really quickly on this around thinking about it. And what's going to be interesting about this too is like, as people are trying to regulate this, you know, traditionally, I'll, I'll go back to the US, but actually around the world, most of the regulation on political stuff has been around advertising, right? And being in disclosure. It hasn't necessarily been about the content. And that's working its way through the Supreme Court right now in the United States. But even around the world, I think people are going to get very uncomfortable about trying to say, even if it's AI generated or not, about whether or not they're going to regulate it and draw these lines. And my gut is we're going to continue to see more disclosure. It also got me thinking, and when you're running a campaign, one of the biggest limitations that you have is time. You know, your candidate can only appear so many places, can only talk about so many things. And I was just sort of thinking, if you do have an AI-generated version of them, right? I mean, there's sort of no shortage of messages you can be delivering virtually, right? I mean, your candidate could be everywhere. And I, I could see from a campaign perspective how that would have a lot of appeal, yeah. And, you know, we've even seen this um, in past elections. I know in India, Modi in the 2019 election right. used a holographic yes. version of himself to be at multiple campaign rallies and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's just going to it's going to continue to allow these campaigns to be in more places to have better use of the candidates time. You know, you're not going to necessarily have to have a candidate sit there and record a radio ad like over and over again. And they'll be able to make custom ones where they can be like, you know, to voters in Green Bay, Wisconsin or Menlo Park, California or, you know, wherever folks are, they're going to be able to make some of that customizable stuff. Whereas before you'd have to have the candidates sit there constantly recording those things. And instead they can be out there meeting voters. We'll be right back. The last example I really want to talk about, and this to me is is arguably one of the most fascinating, and it's out of Pakistan, which is the country's former prime minister, Imran Khan, has been using AI-generated videos to communicate with his supporters since he was jailed last year. And then just over the weekend, an AI-generated video showed him declaring victory in Pakistan's recent election. We're already kind of in this era where election results are being called into doubt. And at least here in the U.S., many voters are, are believing that or convinced that it's true. I wonder what happens when AI is added to that mix. Yeah. And this kind of goes to that sort of like, in some instances, you're like, oh, this is a great example of using it. But you're also like, oh, but what if it's somebody who... Um, we, we don't like or is a more nefarious character doing it, right? Like, and you start getting into these judgment calls that um, I think are, are really tough to think about whether or not somebody should leave it up or take it down. My gut is most people are going to be, again, labeling all of these types of things of what they're doing. One of the most dangerous or tricky times in an election is this time period between when the election is done, maybe initial results have been put out, but there's still this time period where campaigns can appeal them to the courts. You could have recounts. 
You can have other things before those things actually get certified. And in this election, we've seen a lot of like the vote tallies have been changing, right? And there's concerns that the military that's in control of it might actually be manipulating it or other things. And this is where I think international observers for elections are going to have to get up to speed really quickly on AI. Because in my mind, for a lot of this stuff, no one's really quite comfortable with online platforms being in charge. Nobody's always quite comfortable with a government being the sole arbiter um, of what can or cannot be done. And instead, I think we need to be building up a system of checks and balances to hold all these different people accountable. And in an instance like this, having international observers on the ground to be able to help to not only like for the entire world, help them to understand what is being used, how it's being used. And so people are at least clear and can then make their own determinations of what they think is acceptable or not. Well, that's, I I think, such an interesting point, too, because depending on who's creating these videos, right, and how you view them, you know, if you see them as a criminal, then this is a bad thing. If you see them as sort of a a martyr or truth teller, then maybe this is a positive thing. And so I guess then I I wondered, you know, is there a case to be made that AI deepfakes could actually enhance free political speech, especially in these instances where maybe it's being used by political dissidents to sort of speak out when otherwise they might not be able to? Well, you know, as you were saying that, I'm like, wow, we've kind of come almost full circle to the Arab Spring in some ways. I mean, maybe not completely full circle, but it goes back to sort of these tools can be used for, I hate to say like break down to good and bad, but like they can be used for all sorts of different ways of helping to democratize, you know, you're going to probably maybe be able to use this of there's other countries where the opposition has been kicked out of the country. Um, There's other places where they are jailed, you know, and sometimes these online platforms are the only ways that they're able to get their messages out in these countries, because otherwise the majority holds the media and other things in terms of getting their, their voices out there. My mantra for this year is to panic responsibly. (laughs) And that is particularly in terms of AI, because we are going to see these mix of examples. And I think that people are going to need to to understand that like it's not all bad. And I do worry about with the narrative out there just being that everything AI is bad, that in and of itself is going to have an impact in how people view what they're seeing in the media and other things. And we should be careful about not shutting down maybe some positive unintended consequences of this technology, such as some of these use cases of what it could do in places where the minority or, you know, the opposition voices need more ways to, to get their messages out. I love the motto panic responsibly. I feel like that, <laughs> I feel like that's maybe a, a life motto for for journalists. Um you mentioned earlier in our conversation how you spent over a decade at Facebook, which is now Meta, on their public policy team and and you were on the team that grappled with some of these questions about how do you handle political speech online and especially when it comes from political figures themselves, you know, what sort of extra leniency might they be given? If you were in that position now for these tech companies that are dealing with this rise in sort of synthetic campaign material, what are their biggest challenges and how do they handle the fact that they're going to be swamped with this stuff potentially? First and foremost is just defining what is political. We've seen that discussion breaking out over the last weekend when Threads announced that they're not going to be recommending political content. And a lot of people are like, wait, how do you actually define what is political? And I remember trying to do that um, when we were trying to build the political ad transparency tools, because a lot of the Russian internet research agency ads that were run in 2016 didn't actually mention a candidate. They were based on issues. And so we actually had to expand out sort of that definition um, as part of this. And so they're going to have to be 
thinking about how they do that. And, and that's a big challenge when everything can become political again. You know, at times it could be brands, at times it can be celebrities or other things that, that wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily consider that. Then there's, you know, the actual policy. Are you just going to, you know, one of the questions I ask a lot of folks is like, is it better for them to have a policy that they can only reactively enforce on? Or do you want to wait until you can actually proactively enforce on these policies? And there's kind of a mixed bag, but most people I talk to, at least in the trust and safety space, think that these companies should at least have a policy to put a flag in the sand or draw a line of what they think is or is not acceptable. And then the big question is, again, in enforcement um, and what that looks like. And even if you've got to, you know, a lot of times in doing that enforcement, be like, okay, let's just create a list of all the candidates in the world. Let me tell you how complicated that is. The complexity of building seemingly simple lists, it drives you down a, a rabbit hole really quickly. It just takes time. And we're, we can't stop elections. We can't hit pause on the world to try to get everything up to speed <laughs> to get it to this point. And so they have to make priorities. They have to make decisions. They have to make trade-offs about where they're going to be able to enforce and put resources versus not you know, so much of this conversation reminds me of like earlier eras of social media, right, where we saw so much sort of pendulum swinging between our platforms are, are free and open to political content to, you know, we're restricting political content, we're labeling it, Trump is banned, Trump is allowed back on, you know, all of these questions that, as you said, these companies did have to navigate in real time. With AI, are they in any a better position to make some of these tough calls? Or is it, you know, are we sort of back to square one in many ways? We're not back to square one. It's just a different problem to have to think about, right? All the companies are are working on AI. And some of it comes down to like, are you one where you're just where people can generate it? Do you have that distribution platform also that you have to think about? But then there's also like, how are you training the data? What prompts can people do? Like I've been having, I'm out here in California right now for a little bit. And I've just been having some really fascinating conversations about how they build these large language models and how they think about all of this stuff. And I'm like, wow, like trust and safety is going to be changing. We can't just think about it through the social media lens anymore. We really have to start thinking about this in a different way. And I'm still kind of getting my head wrapped around it if I'm if I'm 100% honest. You know, in some ways it's easier because they can learn the lessons of what happened and going through all of this in the past. But on the flip side, it's just a completely new problem with no playbook or roadmap of what this looks like. One last question for you, Katie, and that's just some of these recent examples that we've been talking about in Indonesia and in Pakistan, do they foreshadow at all in your mind kind of the upcoming election here in the U.S. and what we might expect around the use of AI in, in our own election? Maybe. And the reason I say that is the scrutiny is so much stronger here in the United States about campaigns using AI, about the potential of regulation that I think we will definitely see it used. But I don't know if they'll be as forthcoming about it, which is actually I would say a negative consequence of it. If they're worried about getting negative attention, maybe they'll be less transparent about it, which is not exactly what we want um, as part of it. But I think we should definitely expect to see folks that campaigns in the United States continue to use AI in terms of, of making content, of targeting voters um, and doing things of that nature. And then I think we'll really see even more creative uses in future elections. Well, Katie, thank you for joining us on Politico Tech. Thanks for having me. That's all for today's Politico Tech. For more tech news, subscribe to our newsletters, Digital Future Daily and Morning Tech. Music in today's episode comes from the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Our managing producer is Annie Reese. Our producer is Afra Abdullah. 
and our editors are Steve Hoiser, Daniela Cheslow, and Louisa Savage. I'm Stephen Overly. See you back here tomorrow 